we have come, and then, and then we'll get into where we are going today. So we started, we're in the series Overflow, right? And we want to have the love of God overflow out of our lives and, and naturally flow into the lives around us as we lead our lives throughout the week. So we started making sure we're being filled up with the right thing, the right love of God. Not the love of the world, not the way the world loves, but what is love. So we talked about that on the first week. The second week we talked about our motives. What is our motive in coming to Christ and, and what is the why that is driving our life? And so it's very important that we're coming to Christ to know Christ, not to get things from Christ. We're not coming to Christ for the handouts, for the freebies, for the goodies, but we're coming to Christ because He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. And so our motive has to be in check. Does anyone remember what the third week was, the week after that? What? Remind us. Remind us. So I've, I've, I've reminded you the last three weeks, so I'm hoping. What? Identity. Good job. Good job. Who said that was Sheila? Good. Yeah, so the next week was identity, and we talked about um, that we have to receive our identity. We don't achieve our identity. And so it's important for us when we come to Christ to understand that we cannot, through our own righteous acts, earn our position in the kingdom of God. It is given to us. It's something that we receive. And, and we've gone in this specific order because we want to understand before we get to what we talked about last week, which was our actions, that our actions need to be fueled by the right beliefs and the right thinking and so and the right motives. So our motives lead us into the right beliefs and, and the way we think about, and then our beliefs lead us into the right actions, and then hopefully our actions are driven by the right things. And last week we talked about all of the do's and don'ts that are still listed in the New Testament and how we're supposed to put off the old self and put on the new self, and, and how as we come to Christ, there is a plan and there's an order, there's a way God designed our lives to work, and when we're living in accordance with them, we thrive and we find joy and we find peace, and when we're not living in accordance with those things, then we struggle and we have to strive, and we're constantly coming up short because we're trying to take what God has given us and at the same time still embrace the fallen, broken nature of this world, and it doesn't work. But those first, those first four weeks, the first three weeks really, the first three, which is motive, identity, and actions, they all kind of focus on me, right? They focus on individuals. They focus on, as I have come to Christ, this is what my life kind of needs to start to look like. But, but if we stopped there, we would stop extremely short of, of the whole picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to go to John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can go there and uh, join us in John chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to get a Bible. I know the app is good, but it's great to be able to, to have a Bible and underline things and take notes. We do make the, the uh, Scripture and the bulletin available for you in the Version Bible app, and so you can go there, and uh, hopefully we can just throw that up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you today. But I would encourage you to get a Bible, and um, I honestly like this one that I just got off of Amazon. It's called uh, the Journal Through the Word Bible. It's the New International Version. That's the version we teach out of here at the church. But it's Journal Through the Word, and the reason I like it is because it has margins on the side, and I can take notes. And so there's lots of space to write things in as we go through there. Um, and I would encourage you just to kind of get a Bible and mark it up and write it up and then write down what God is teaching you as you go through the Bible. And then later when you come back to those passages or like some of the ones that I have uh, highlighted today are ones that, that I've read through and, and taken notes on. And so I've got notes and I've got things underlined as, as I've gone through them. And it's just fun to kind of go back and see what I underlined and what God was pointing out to me at that point in time. And then God will show you different things and you know, it's great to just have something in your hands that you can go back to and kind of track your journey and your relationship with God. So I would really encourage you to have an actual physical Bible and write in it and mark it up and make it your own. Anyway, that's not really the point of what we're talking about today, although the Bible is the emphasis of everything that we talk about. But John chapter 2, I want to get into this. John chapter 2, verse 13 taught on this passage, one of the first uh, sermons I taught when I came here uh, four and a half years ago, and I want to come back to it today. It's important for us to understand this principle. 
Jesus had just changed the water into wine at the, the wedding at Cana and in Galilee, and this was you know one of the first or the first sign that he performed. And right after that, we get to this where Jesus comes in and he clears the temple. And as best we can tell, there are two times when he clears the temple. This first time, which happens at the beginning of his ministry, and this is the one that John records. Uh, but this here, John puts it at the beginning of his ministry, and then later the other gospels put uh, the cleansing of the temple right before the Passover, right before he's going to go to the cross, and so that one would be at the end of his ministry. So Jesus does the same thing twice, as best we can tell, and this is the first time that he does it. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And when he made a whip, out of cords, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, a little bit of understanding I think is important for us to kind of grasp what is going on in this passage. The 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 Jews would have to come to Jerusalem. And, and offer a sacrifice, right, at, at Passover. And what they were supposed to do were they were supposed to go to their own flocks, to their own, uh, their, their own animals that they kept, and pick the best one and bring it with them to sacrifice. Well, what happened is as the Jews kind of got spread out all over, all over Israel and even some outside of Israel uh, through the different uh, things that happened in, in the Old Testament that caused them to be spread out, is that it became a journey, it became a long journey that they would have to make, and so it's not real easy to bring an animal with you as you're making this trip, making this journey to come and offer your sacrifice. And so, so there were some, you know, some entrepreneurs, there were some people probably with really good intentions that, that decided, well, instead of people having to bring animals with them to sacrifice, we can sell animals here. That way they don't have to carry their animals with them on the journey. And it's important that we understand that because we're talking today about consumerism and its effect on the church. And as you hear, the, 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 the intentions often behind consumerism is, is what kind of sets up a, a good intention actually paves the way for consumerism. Consumerism is, is often the byproduct or the product of good intentions. The good intentions were, were probably good, although as we see in what Jesus is, is talking about, that how it had fleshed out and worked out over the years had become something that was detestable. In the temple courts, verse 14, it says, He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, the people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, we come to find out through, uh, at least through our understanding of it, that, that these weren't always good animals. These weren't always ones without blemish, which is what the requirement was for bringing in an animal without blemish. And so, so it was just kind of, you know, whatever they could get and whatever they could make money. And there were others sitting at the table exchanging money. So they would have their money from their local region, their local area, and they'd bring it in, and they had a specific kind of currency in the temple courts. And so they would come in, and of course, when you're exchanging money, if you've ever exchanged money, you know that there is an exchange rate. And what was happening were they were, they were charging an exorbitant exchange rate for when they would exchange money. And so people were coming and being essentially taking advantage of, like with payday loans and those kinds of things, where they have just an enormous interest rate that, where they take just a huge chunk out of the money. And Jesus comes in, and he sees this happening, and what is his response? Jesus' response is to make a whip out of cords and drive all of the animals and all of the people out of the temple courts. If you do a little bit of research, you see the whip that he made out of cords wasn't just like, you know, a whip that they would use for driving cattle, although that, that is a possibility. But, but when, it looks at, when you look at the word cords, the word cords refers to uh, the ropes that they use to tie ships up at dock. And if you've seen those, you know those are, those are great big cords. And so Jesus just kind of makes a whip out of one of these big cords that he cut, and he just starts driving, just cracking the cord, the ship cord, to drive things away, which 
you know, Jesus, I mean, if you've ever seen one of those ropes, it takes a lot of strength to be able to do this. So Jesus wasn't just, you know, this kind of little weak, frail, fragile man. You know, he was a real man's man. He could, he could take control of a situation when, when he needed to. But Jesus drove him out, and then he says to those, who, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples, remember, this isn't on the screen, that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's all we have. Then they, they move on to, to Jesus talking and teaching about how you could say, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. But, but uh, we don't really have much else about the interaction there. But, but I still think there are some really good principles that we can learn. You know, there, he was talking about how we shouldn't turn the temple there into something that, that really is an, a... a, a an abomination really to God because he destroyed or he created the temple to for himself to be worshiped him and, and, and they were turning it into something selfish. But as we've talked about here with us, we become have become the temple where God dwells. No, so so Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and now the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are God's temple. So this building is no longer a holy building like a lot of people think. This building is just a facility that we meet in. The, the holiness that is in this building is, comes because we have gathered here together and we are God's temple. We are God's temple. And that means the rest of us in this room are also temples of the Most High God. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are a temple. And that has great effect and great importance in this point that we're talking about today. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about consumerism. We're in a world just surrounded by and driven by consumerism, and it's become a driving force in Christianity, and it's become a driving force in churches. And to be honest, it's been a force that we've either had to deal with or we even participated in in various ways over the course of my time being here as the pastor. And what consumerism looks like, it's essentially like locusts. Anyone familiar with locusts? I was gonna I was gonna show some videos of locusts, but consumerism is, is essentially going to something, a resource, and consuming it to your own advantage, to your own survival, and then just moving on to something else. And you know, I wanted to show the clip from Independence Day, but I figured that might not connect because it's about aliens. But you know, there's that epic scene where where the president is, has this interaction with the alien, right? And the alien, you know, implants ideas into the mind of the president. And anyone know what I'm talking about? Or I'm the only one that likes Independence Day. It's okay. I think it's one of the best movies of all time. But um, the alien implants this, plants the idea, and you know, he sees what's going to go on, and he says they're like locusts. They're just they're coming to Earth to consume all of its natural resources, and when they're consumed, they'll just move on throughout the galaxy to find another place to do that. And and that's that's essentially what consumerism is. We're going to consume everything for our own benefit. So we get what we want out of it, and then once we get what we want out of it, we'll just move on to something else. And, and that's the approach not only that we have, but that's the approach that, that the world and the outside unbelieving, you know, financially driven world has towards us. You know, they, they want to use us. I know I'm, it kind of sounds like I'm on a conspiracy theory thing, now, but this is just really how, this is just how it works. So the world is using us to fill the pockets of, you know, of the of those who own the organization, the company, of, to, to fill the pockets of the stockholders, right? And we talk about how stockholders kind of hold everything in check, and the, they're the most important thing when it comes to publicly owned companies. You know, got to keep the stockholders happy. You hear that talk all of the time. Or, or you know, there are businesses like Apple and, and Windows and all of the different businesses. You know, they're just trying to get us to buy their product. And if we don't buy their product, they're going to move on to someone else who they can hopefully get to buy a product, right? This is the same. All, all the products that we are consuming all around us that we're even surrounded with in this, in this building, they're all, they all have a drive that are being driven by hopefully, you know, lining the pockets of the people at the top of the organization. Does that mean that products are bad? No, products are not all bad. God can use, and we seek to, you know, redeem a lot of the technology that God uh, gives us ideas how we can redeem some of the things that were meant for evil that we can use for good. So there's, it's not all bad, but, 
But it's the mentality that's behind that in our world that we have to be extraordinarily careful of. Because how I think I see it being worked out in, in so much of the church now is that we bring this consumeristic mentality to the church where we think, okay, I'm coming to church simply to consume, to, to we use phrases like this, to have my needs met, right? To, to, to get what I need, I need, you know, and so, so we hear often all the time people needing to go to this church or that church because, you know, you know I just wasn't getting anything out of my church and I, I needed better teaching or I wasn't, I just wasn't getting anything out of the worship and so, you know, so I needed to go somewhere where, where they could get, where I could get something out of the worship experience or I wasn't getting anything out of the different ministries of the church. I wasn't getting anything out of the youth ministry. My kids weren't getting anything out of the youth ministry, so I had to find a youth ministry, a church that had a good youth ministry and we're going to go there or a church with a good kids ministry or a church with a men and a women's ministry that really meets my needs and we go and we consume the resource of it until that, that ministry is no longer meeting my needs the way that I think it should be meeting my needs, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves moving on to another church to try to have our needs met. The dangerous part of how this works out is that then we start to approach our relationships with one another in a similar fashion. Is that then people actually become a commodity to be consumed as well, right? This mentality takes us to a point where, where now it's not just the, just the programs and the things that are offered that I get to consume, but, but people become a commodity that I consume. And this is very important for us to understand because we believe that people are made in God's image and, and deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And if we start treating people around us as a commodity to be consumed, we are not treating them with dignity and respect, we are treating them as though there's a dollar sign in front of their name. And we do this, we, do, we come and say, well, you know, Tim, I like Tim. Tim's a fun guy to be around, but, but Tim plays the bass on the guitar, so, you know, or he plays the bass on the worship team, and so if I approach Tim as a commodity, then Tim's only value to me is when he plays bass on the worship team or when he helps out with the youth ministry. And then when Tim, like he is doing, which I've told him I disapprove of, is going to go off and, and help down with Hurricane Harvey and repairing and rebuilding and some of those kinds of things. Are you still doing that? You don't know? Okay. Okay, well, I've been praying against that, so, um, so I'm, just, I'm just trusting that God's going to make that clear to him through through the Holy Spirit and the influence of all of the people in this church that really love Tim and don't want Tim. No, I'm just But what you know, if Tim follows through with this, then then when Tim is gone and you know he's off helping Hurricane Harvey, then he has no value to me anymore because he's no longer pre performing what I need. And and that's how a lot of churches treat people and that's how a lot of Christians treat people. We treat people, okay, I want something from you and if I don't get what I want from you, then you have no value to me. I'm going to move on to someone else. So we kind of have this locust consumer mentality in our relationships, right, where we, we approach our relationships with people on, on the basis of whether or not we can get something in return. And if we can't get something in return, then, then we move on and hopefully find someone who will give us what we want. See, the, the outworking of this love of God in our lives is something that we, like we've talked about, we want to, the love of God to overflow out of our lives and into the lives of those around us. And so we need to make sure that we're very clear on what the love of God flowing out of our lives should look like when it flows out to the lives around us because we don't want it to look like consumerism. We don't want it to look like, okay, we want you to come to 6-8 church or we want you to come to know Jesus Christ, but it's only because we want to get something from you. Well, that's not what, what, what the love of Christ looks like because Jesus first gave us our identity before he called us to live out this life. So my question is, do you approach church, whether it's our church or another church, or do you approach your relationships with people in the church as a family that you're committed to or as a product you consume? What is your approach to this church, to our church? What is your approach to your relationships with other believers and your relationships with non-believers 
Is it as a product you consume, or is it as a family that you're committed to? So we went, we, one of the reasons we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is because we needed to make it very clear what it looked like to love one another in a godly love kind of a way. And if you go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you'll see that love is patient, love is kind, love does not seek its own, love is not all about me, love is giving and giving and pouring yourself out. So we have to ask ourselves some questions. How, how do we see the people that God has put in our lives? Do we see people as though they're a commodity or a resource to be used to our own advantage? Of course, we wouldn't say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not using people. We would say, well, I'm, you, might not, you might not think you're using people, but what's your approach to the relationships in your life? Are you only giving to get, or are you only taking, maybe not even giving at all, you're just taking from the people in your life? Are you living at the expense of others? Because if we see people made in the image of God, then we see them for their created value. We don't see them as only being valuable when they can give to us or when we can take something from them. God sees us in His image, and He wants to redeem and restore us into that image. We'll talk about that in just a second. And so God calls us to Himself into a love relationship with Himself so that He can redeem and restore the best that He had for us and mine from the very beginning. When He's pursuing a relationship with us, He's, he's pursuing something better in our lives for us. He sees something better for us than we are currently experiencing, and so that's part of His pursuit of us in relationship with Him. And so when we replicate that, when our lives become about that as followers of Jesus Christ, our, our lives then become about pursuing the best in others, not just pursuing people to get. So how do we see people? Are they a resource, or do we see them truly as made in the image of God? The thing that drives us here at 6A Church is, is teaching people to follow Jesus Christ, and this is the life that He exemplified. And when we see people correctly, we understand that God is intricately weaving together a masterpiece in every single local congregation. God is weaving together a masterpiece here at 6-8 Church, and the same thing that He is doing at City Harvest Church down the road, and Messiah Lutheran and Columbia Christian down the street. He's weaving together a masterpiece, and the point of it is His own glory. He's bringing us together to make His name known. He's not creating all of these different commodities so that we can, we can kind of decide, okay, well, I'm not really a city harvest kind of a person. I'm, I'm more of a 6'8 kind of a person. I'm not, really, I'm not really a Messiah Lutheran kind of a person. I, you know, I, I'm a Columbia Christian kind of a Christian. Right? I'm not really a Liberty Bible kind of a Christian. I'm more of a crossroads kind of a Christian. I'm not, I'm not really a small church kind of a Christian. I'm, I'm more of a big church kind of a Christian. I'm not, really, I'm not really a big church kind of a Christian. I'm a small church kind of a Christian. And so, so we kind of have defined all of these different products within the Christian realm that we are going to consume based on our own preferences. Now, fortunately, God works in spite of or around and through all of those different things, and He brings people where He wants them so that they can get what they really need. But the question is, do we allow God to give us what we really need, or when we're not getting what we think we need, do we move on? More on that in just a second. I know this is a real uplifting, encouraging, positive sermon for the Sunday after block party, but that's just where it fell. I'm not trying to hammer on everyone. But when we see people correctly, we, don't, we not only understand why we are the way we are, but we're driven to be used by God to rescue people from the darkness. How do you see people? How do you see people? When you know the truth and when you see the value of the people around you, it should break your heart to see them embracing the lie. We talked about this not that long ago. I, I talked about the idea of being veiled in corruption. That before we come to Christ, we, we are, we're looking through a corrupted lens. 
know, the operating system is broken. It's been infiltrated by the virus, and there's no way for us apart from Christ to be able to see clearly, to see things the way that God designed them to be. So, so when we look at the world around us, what we see is a world that's broken by the virus, a world that's being just completely destroyed and devastated by the lie of the curse. Back from Genesis chapter 3. And so instead of looking, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times people think that the churches and Christians are, you know, dogging on culture and just, you know, just we're enemies of the world and, you know, we just, we just kind of want to, you know, kind of want to destroy all of the evil that exists in the world. But, but that's not the point of view that we have in Christ. The point of view is not, not look at all those evil people that we must destroy. The point of view that we should have in Christ is look at all the people who are still veiled in the corruption of the lie. They're still believing the deceit of the world around them and they need to be set free from the chains that are holding them in that lie, not be destroyed because they've believed the lie. That's the way we need to see people when we are in Christ. We need to see people as, as though they're, they're embracing something that is destroying them. We're not seeing people as though they are the enemy. We need to see people as though they need to be set free. We need to have the right way of seeing do we, see, do we see church? Do we see other believers? And even do we see non-believers the right way? See, this, this is all built on everything that we've talked about up to this point. We have to know, believe, understand, and live the truth in such a way that we're able to point people away from the lies they embrace and towards the only real truth. We have to know, believe, understand, and live the truth in such a way that we're able to point people away from the lies that they embrace and towards the only real truth, which is in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This passage here that we're going to focus on, but I want to set it up for us. Starting in verse 12, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What is our hope? Well, let's go back just a little bit. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, or passing or temporary as it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? So Paul is talking about the Old Testament law and, and all the laws and covenants of the Old Testament, which uh, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ when he says it is finished. He has fulfilled all of the demands of the, of the, uh, of the law in his own flesh so that we could be set free from it. So he's talking about if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious. So the ministry that brought condemnation was the old law, the, the law of the Old Testament, and that was fulfilled and finished in Jesus Christ. He says, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And we've talked about even this morning, the ministry of Jesus Christ reconciles us to God, and now we are clothed, dressed in his righteousness alone, like we sang about earlier this morning. We're dressed in his righteousness alone, and that is how Christ sees us. That is the hope that we have. So Paul says, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. What was glorious before in the Old Testament and the Old Law now has no glory compared when it's contrasted, when you put it alongside the surpassing glory of the new covenant, the new promise of Jesus Christ. And if, it was and if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So the, the temporary nature of the old law, it came with glory. How much greater now is the law or is the glory that comes with the new covenant? Okay, so that's where we, that's the, the, let's set us up for this here in verse 12. Therefore, since we have a hope, we are very bold. What is our hope? Our hope is in the new covenant, the new promise, the new glory. 
We are very bold. We are not like Moses who had put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. If you go read that in, uh, I don't know exactly where it is, somewhere in the book of Exodus, you can go read that when Moses would go and spend time with God, he would, his face would start to glow because of being in the presence of God, and it freaked out all of the Israelites, and so he would put a veil over his face so that he wouldn't scare all of the people of Israel and, uh, because they just couldn't handle the fact that his face was glowing with the presence of God. And so he would veil, he put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end, what was the residual effects of having been in the presence of God. But their minds, verse 14, were made dull, for to this day the the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The freedom is being set free from the thing that has veiled us to being able to see God says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taking away. He's talking specifically about Israelites. But before we come to Christ, we cannot see Christ clearly. We we come and we receive the gift of Christ, and then we start to live that out. We start to understand what this gift is that we've been given. But apart from Christ, none of us can see clearly, and that is what the world around us of those who don't believe are experiencing. They're, they're looking through a veil. They cannot see things like they're supposed to be seeing them. They, their faces are veiled. They're veiled in corruption. They're veiled in brokenness. They're veiled in the fallen nature of this world. But we, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, we know, we believe, we understand, and now we live the truth in such a way that we're able to point people away from the lies that they're currently embracing and towards the real truth. And if we have a consumeristic me-first mentality about all of this, we never actually take this shift and turn from all the goodness that we receive and start to shine and look out to those who have not yet received it. We cannot stop with, with just receiving the goodness of God. We actually have to do like Jesus did, did and, and carry the goodness of God out into the darkness of those who do not yet believe. John chapter 15. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, John chapter 15, the vine and the branches. We've been here many times. But here in verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. The Father has loved the Son, and as, as a part of receiving this love, he has loved the disciples. This is who he's talking to, his disciples, his 12 disciples. And he says to them, now remain in my love. What does that mean? If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So loving, just like we talked about last week, loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength means that we keep His commands, and that is how we remain in His love. We don't remain in His love by, by taking what we want from God and doing what we want with our lives. We, we remain in His love by doing what He's commanded us to do. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The reason He is giving us these commands, like we see in verse 11, is not, is not so that He can just have a bunch of mindless drones following Him, but it's, it's for our own benefit, for our own joy. It's our joy that we, that we live these things out. So what is the command? What is the command that He's given to us? My command is this, verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's own life for one's friends. And listen how Jesus talks about his disciples. 
Verse 14, he calls his disciples, his friends, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So the, the commands of Christ are not merely for our own benefit. Yes, God wants to give us joy, but, but it's not that we end at just our selfish pursuit of God and receiving what we want from God. At some point, the love we have received has to absolutely must push us outside of ourselves to loving and caring for the people around us. If it doesn't, if it doesn't push us in that direction, if it doesn't push us into a selfless way of living life, then have we really understood and received the love of God? Or are we just trying to take what we can get from God so that we can make sure that we have the life that we want but not really be who God has called us to be, which is shining the light into the darkness? I'm not a big financial guru. I don't know a lot about you know, money. A lot of it's just kind of common sense, I think. You know, credit cards are bad. Don't use credit cards. If you're using credit cards, then you need to stop using credit cards. And, you know, don't be the borrower is slave to the lender. I know that's not really common sense anymore. It should be, but we've kind of lost that idea. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm not like, you know, you talk about a 401k, you start talking about compounding interest and all of these things. It just starts to get really confusing really quick. But I do know this about money. If you want to earn interest... You have to make a deposit, right? So, you know, a lot of us just kind of have this, the savings account that comes with our, with our bank, you know, with having a bank, you know, you get a checking account, a lot of times you just get a savings account that has like 0.000008% interest you earn a year. And so, you know, you have $12,000 in there and you get one cent after a year because of all, it's like, but, you know, but there's, but without, without making the deposit into your savings account, there is no interest earned, right? If there's, if there's no balance, there is no interest, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of common sense. Hopefully, hopefully you know that. If you don't, that's just a free financial lesson. You can take that and, and walk with it. But, you know, um, we, we try to save up for the vacations that we do. And, you know, my wife, through all of her blogging, she pays for all of the trips that we do. She gets different, pay, different forms of payment, and we just kind of use that and, and uh, disperse it. And so we opened up a new savings account to put some of that money in that earns a little bit more interest. So hopefully we can get, you know, our vacation dollars to just go a little bit further. And I think it's like one point or eight five or point eight five. I can't remember. It's Ally Bank. It's online. But, you know, you, you, get, you get more interest. And so we put the money in there, and hopefully we can earn just a little bit more money to do, you know, just like one, one more free dinner or something as a, as a result of, of doing this. But we don't earn interest on that money if we keep the money in the jar, which is where we've always kept it, you know. We have to invest the money in the bank to receive the interest out of it. This whole, this whole thing we're talking about of what it means to follow Jesus Christ is, is a system that God has designed, and it's a system that we see Jesus live out day in and day out of his ministry here on earth with his disciples. And what we see by Jesus' example is him pouring his life into his disciples' lives, making an investment, making a deposit for something that he has in mind for them for the future. Let's read this again. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. He has not yet gone to the cross, and yet he's saying, love one another as I have loved you. And he's going to talk about how he's going to the cross and he's going to give his life for his followers. But, but up until this point, he's already been giving himself and pouring himself into his disciples. He's been pouring his life into their lives and he's been making a deposit for the future of the church. 
And in fact, the deposit that he has made has now returned enormous dividends throughout all of history and and what he did. The interest that is being earned on the deposit that Jesus made into the lives of those 12 is, is something that's almost untrackable because it has grown so amazingly. I know that if you don't make a deposit, you don't earn interest. I think we all understand that when it comes to money, but I don't think we we take the truth of that principle into the rest of our lives, that if we don't put something into something, we never get what God really has for us out of it. So we think all of our life is just to go and consume like locusts and take and take and take and take and take and take and take, and And then when everything is gone, then we just have to find a new planet to move to. But that's not how God designed the system to work. He designed the system for us to pour ourselves out into something, for us to be so full of His love and goodness and righteousness and and graciousness that, that we pour ourselves out. And as we pour ourselves out, then there is an abundance of love around us to, to take care of all of the needs that need to be met. That doesn't happen when we're all coming to try to get, you know, it's like, oh, there's... A, just like somebody comes and puts something, <laughs> take it. Goes, oh, I, finally, I've been, I've been waiting for that. But, but if we come and we pour ourselves out, if we pour ourselves out in community, we pour ourselves out in relationship, we pour ourselves out as we invest in the lives around us, it starts to work how God designed the system to work. So I have to ask, you know, if you're feeling this morning like, I'm just not getting anything out of church I'm just not getting anything out of, you know, my, my relationships with other people. I'm just not getting anything out of, you know, the community that I'm in. I'm just not getting anything out of X, Y, Z. Could it be that the reason we're not getting anything is because we're not investing anything? That we're not getting anything out of something because we're not putting anything into it. So, so there is no way for us to really truly receive are we, are we investing? Are we investing in the lives of others? Are we investing in true community with other believers? Do we really care about the people God has put in our lives? Are we, are we concerned with their well-being, with, with making sure that they have what they need and, and giving freely as God has given to us freely? Or are we, just, are we just trying to use people for our own advantage? Are we investing? Not only are we just investing, but are we investing with the right attitude? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Remember this, this is Paul speaking, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. What do we abound in? We we abound in the good work that God has called us to do. We don't abound in our own selfishness. We we abound in the good works, but but we have to start in the right place. Are we sowing sparingly or are we sowing reapingly? I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about offering, although that is a natural part of what he's talking about here, and he's talking, he's talking about an offering that, that he's wanting the Corinthians to give, and he's talking about how they'd given before and, and what was keeping them from giving the way they had given before, and just kind of get that's a lot of what Second Corinthians is dealing with. But, and it does affect our offering, our tithe, our money, and our money is, can be our master, but that's for another time, but how are, we, how are we sowing when it comes to community? How are we sowing when it comes to, you know, relationship and church? Are, are, are we sowing sparingly? You know, I've often talked about gardening, but um, I tried a little experiment this year. My grandpa had a planter, a corn planter, 
And it's one of those things that you walk behind, it's got two wheels on it, and the front wheel or the back wheel has teeth on it that grabs the soil and that spins the planter. It's got a belt and it just kind of plants corn in the soil. And I thought, well, I'd never used one of these, so I'm going to try it this year. So we tried it with two rows just to see how it would work out, and then we did the rest of them by hand like we had normally done. And, and I didn't want to use it for the, whole, for the whole crop of corn because I just saw how much seed this thing was pouring into the ground. And I thought, man, we, we, can't, we can't use all of this seed up because, you know, it's, I'm not going to have enough to plant the rest of the rows. That I, we're not going to get nearly as much corn. And so, so I thought, well, I, I can't use this thing for the whole crop. So we'll do a couple rows, see how that works, and, and then we'll plant the rest by hand like, like we always do. And, you know, what has happened? Those first two rows that we planted with the planter that was designed by people who knew a lot more about planting corn than I know about planting corn and planting all of the vegetables and all of the system, that, how it's supposed to work. If you, if you do things the way they're supposed to be done, then you can get a lot better results out of it. You know, all the people who had kind of gone into all the science behind it, you know, they, they designed this, this product to work in such a way that if you, if you use it the way you're supposed to, you kind of see where I'm going with this, right? If you use it the way that it's designed to work, then you get better results and then if you think that you know better than, than the system. And and so we have these two rows that are about a foot, maybe a foot and a half taller than the rest of the whole crop of corn, and it just came in so much thicker because we planted a lot more seed, you know, in those rows. So, so it just, just kind of came, there's just an abundance of corn in the two rows, and you contrast that with the rest of the corn that we planted. It's not nearly as full and flourishing. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you'll reap generously. See, you know, I thought, well, I needed to save this seed so that, you know, just, you know, why do we ever feel like we need to save seed? I don't know, but I still have that bag of seeds sitting in my shop. Didn't get planted. It's just sitting there for no good at all. If we had sowed sparingly, we'd have a lot more corn this year. But I think we have the same approach in our relationships, right, in our communities. It's like, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to step on some toes, and I apologize, but I'm going to step on mine in the process, and I'll, I'll explain that to you, because I'm just, I'm just as bad at some of this as, as anyone in this room. So I'm, if I'm going to step on your toes, I'm going to step on my toes. Are, are we, are you and I, are we investing out of compulsion because we feel like that's what we're supposed to do? That's a good question we have to ask. Or are we doing it in a cheerful response to the love that has been poured into your life? It's the first question we have to ask ourselves. Are we investing in the lives of those around us out of compulsion because I feel like that's what I'm obligated to do because you stand up there behind the pulpit and yell at me for 40 minutes about how I'm supposed to be investing and so I feel compulsed, compelled, not compelled, but I'm compulsed compulsed to do it. I have the microphone. I'm allowed to make up words. So I just, oh, if you're going to, if you're going to, I'll just, I'll, I'll do it if you'll just shut up so we can go home, right? It's like, okay, so I'm going to do it. Or, or are we investing in the lives around, around us because we've been so filled with the love of God, it must pour out. Are we investing with the right motives? It comes back to the whole thing we've been talking about. Are you, this, I'm going to talk to, to two people here, are you investing because you want something in return? Are you investing in the lives of others only so you can get something out of them? Are, are you giving a seed so you can receive a seed? Do you help others so that you can have favors to call in? Okay, so, so I helped you, so now it's your turn to help me, and then, then we're even, and so whoever calls and asks for the next favor, then you know, we have to pay back, pay back. That's like, just how it works. Are, are, we, are we helping others so that we have favors to call in? And, or do you not ask for help because you don't want to owe someone a favor in return? Do we not... Do we not live in such a relationship that we just want to help one another because God has poured out, God has blessed us abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need, we will abound in every good work? 
Like, well, I, I don't want to give unless I'm going to get something, or I don't want to get something because I might have to give something in return. You hear what that is, right? That's just consumerism. That's just, I'm going to consume, and if I, you know, if I receive something as a gift, then I have to give it back so that I'm not in someone else's debt. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. There, there aren't debts that work in this way. We, we come together because we have received such a great love, and God, who has abundantly poured out his love not only on us but in us, also wants to bless us abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having already all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And see, when we approach this whole thing called church and this, ministry, this uh, relationship with Jesus Christ as something, as a product we consume, we never get to the real heart behind it, which is abundance so that we can do what God has wanted us to do. We're just so consumed with getting the, the little things that we need that we never actually get beyond it to the bigger picture that God has called us to. So my question for me, for us, for you this morning is, how do we see people? How do we see church? How do we see community? Do we see church and people as a commodity to consume, or do we see that is people made in God's image and that he desperately wants to redeem and restore more people into his image. And if you feel like you have the right motives but you're not, but you're not yet pouring out your life into the life of others, I, I want to ask what's keeping you from taking that step? What's keeping you from starting to pour yourself out in the way that you've been called to pour out? What's keeping the love of God from overflowing in your life? Maybe, maybe you want to, but the well's dry. Maybe, maybe you want to, but you haven't been building your relationship with God, so there's actually nothing to flow out of your life. It's, there's, nothing, there's nothing there to come out because we haven't yet made the investment. I don't know. I think there's probably a lot of different things that keep us from looking like this kind of community, but what is it that's keeping you from taking the step that you need to make? As we close, though, I just want to kind of pat you on the back. I don't want to just pound everyone down this morning. We talk about this so many times, but and I don't say this to my own credit or to, to pat myself on the back, but in so many ways we are exceptions to the general rule of how church works in America at the moment. So many ways we, we, we are above the bar. I sent out an email this week, you know, talking about uh, how people serve here at 6A Church, and before I did, I just went through the list and just looked at how many people serve a couple times a year or serve regularly, weekly in ministry, and at our church, people who serve at least twice a year, that's 75% of our people serve at least twice a year. And I've been at churches where there are massive amounts of people who never serve at all. We're, we're, we're really just, we're really above the bar. I mean, we're, in terms of people who serve, we're just really kind of above, above the standards of a lot of people. Same thing with people who give. We have a lot of people who give, you know, tithes and offerings. And, and it's obviously, I don't know if I've shared this, but um, the correlation between those who serve and those who give is, is astounding. Those who support the church financially also happen to be the ones who serve the most. And so one of the reasons, one of the desires we have for, for service is because that's where we see people start to follow Christ more, more passionately and get more engaged with their faith and, and more engaged in community is because we see, just like, like Jesus did, as you serve other people alongside those who God is pouring into the life of you, then, then it just kind of forms and, and brings you together in a, in a, a supernaturally welded bond. So, yeah, we're doing pretty good, to be honest. I mean, in terms, if we're going to, if I would call up a lot of my, my pastor friends and just ask for their numbers, you know, I would get to be the guy on the other end of the phone for the most part bragging about how awesome I say, yeah, you got 20%, I got 75 cent, 75%, brothers, so step it up. Let's get to, I mean, come on, man. So, you know, 
I don't do that. I'm not that kind of guy. But I am the kind of guy that, that sees, and as thankful as I am for the 75%, I look at the 25 and my question, you know, if you're in that 25 that's not serving, then what's keeping you from taking that step? What's keeping you from, from building community with other believers? We, we, at least for the time being, have chosen serving alongside other believers as a, our primary form of building community and relationships. And just like you maybe have observed yesterday, we kind of get to experience the good, the bad, the ugly, the blood, sweat, and tears when we're working hard alongside one another like we did yesterday at the block party. I don't know if you saw me, but I was just, I mean, I was sweating like a pig by the time we got finished tearing everything down. I I just, you know, couldn't wait to get home and wash all the dirt and grime off of me. But, you know, like how many times, I mean, I I sweat from time to time on a Sunday, but how many times do you work alongside somebody and sweat with them? I know it's just gross, right? But I think it's how God designed us to, to sweat alongside, to work alongside one another. And as we do that, we, we really start to forge and build relationships that go so much stronger than just sitting around and being selfish and talking about my own needs, wants, and desires, which there's a place for that. But, but are we actually going beyond that to helping meet the needs and wants and desires of the people around us? That's how God designed the community of Christ to work. God designed us to be so full that we're pouring ourselves out. So what's keeping us from pouring out? Let's stand together. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Nobody looking around just like we've done the last couple of weeks. I don't know where, where you are, but I know that I've got work to do when it comes to this area, that there's, there's still more that God wants to, to use me and teach me and show me when it comes to living with this kind of community mindset, not for my own benefit, but living for the benefit of those that God has placed around me. I, I know God's got work that, that he needs to do in my heart and my life, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. And if that's you, if, if, you're, if you would say, yeah, I, 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 want to, I want to get beyond consuming people or consuming church or consuming relationships for my own benefit, and I want to get to a point of, of pouring out the love of God into those around me, I just ask that you raise your hand, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for me. I want to pray for all of us who raise our hands this morning. We've got my hand up. There's a couple of us that have our hands up this morning. If you'd say that's that's me, I want I want I want more of that kind of community in my. I want more of that relationship with God in my life. And I want to pray for you. You can put your hands down. pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for for all of us here in this community. I pray especially for those who feel this desire welling up within them this morning, that that there's, there's there's more work, there's more room for improvement when it comes to to me pouring myself out, that that there's some things I need to die to when it comes to seeing a community as something I can use for my own well-being, for my own advantage, that there's, there's more that you want to use me for in this community. Father, I pray that, that you would change the way we think about relationships, that you would change the way we think about church, that you change the way we think about even those who are outside the faith and don't yet believe change the way we think about all of society and all of the world, that, that we stop 
seeing the world as a commodity to be consumed, and we see the world as, as something you want us to, to desperately go into and, and rescue people from the lie that they believe, to, to rescue people who are in bondage to things that have deceived them about what this life is really about, and, and to go in and through the love of God pouring out of our lives to go in and help be instruments of freedom, setting people free from the chains that bind them. But Father, I pray that you would also do that for us here in this room this morning. If we find ourselves chained to lies that are not a part of your kingdom, if we find ourselves chained to things that have deceived us about, about who we are in you, I pray, Father, that you would not set us free because you've already set us free from those, but that you would help us to look down and see that we're free from those chains. Father, help us to just look and see that we are no longer bound to that way of thinking. We're no longer bound to the things that held us, but we have already been set free from that. We've already received the victory over those things. We just need to walk in it. We need to embrace it. We need to live it out. And for all of us, Father, I pray if there's, if there's an area where you're urging us and calling us and pushing us to go deeper this morning, if there's if there's something in our hearts and our lives where you just want us to lay down more, to sacrifice more, to give up more, to surrender more so that, so that we may have more of you in our lives, I pray, Father, that you would reveal that to us and help us in this moment to decide to lay it down once and for all and that we would pick up what you have for us. And for all of us, I pray, Father, that you would put in us a, a passion and a desire to know you more to pursue you more, to pursue a relationship with the God who loved us enough to, to provide the pathway to relationship for us, that, that we would be so overwhelmed with the goodness that you've given to us that we can't help but know and desire and follow you more, that we find ourselves compelled to read more in your word about who you are and also what you say about us, that, that we find ourselves driven to know you at a level that we've never known before, that we may be filled to overflowing with the love of God and that the love of God would pour out of our lives and spill out of the, our lives onto the lives of those around us. I pray that that would be the airmark of our church, that that would be just how people know us, that the love of God pours out of these people in an unexplicable way, not for our benefit, not to make much of ourselves or our name, but that your name, would be made known among the lost, among those who don't know you. I ask these things, I pray these things for your glory and in Jesus' name.